0: Hello and welcome back to Oro Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. So here's a good question. What makes heaven, heaven and hell, hell? So what if everybody actually goes to the same place and you have all the beauty that we have here in our hometown? For some people it's heaven, for some people it's hell. What determines those two things? Because behind it all is the mystery of God. In hell, God is a consuming fire. In purgatory, God is consuming, purging Father fire that consumes and cleans our wounds and prepares us for heaven. But in heaven, God is fire that brings a light, warmth, life to the human person. So today, in the 26th Sunday of Ordinary Time, we have the story about the rich man and Lazarus. If you remember the story, the rich man dines sumptuously, but the dogs lick Lazarus' sore. The rich man has more than enough, but he won't even throw the crummy remains to this poor man who lies right there at the gate to his big house. You know, today at Oro Valley Catholic, we're going to talk about parables, Jesus' language, and how to understand the different levels of parables. So Parables, Morality in the Invisible World, this week on Oral Valley Catholic. Why is Jesus such a unique teacher? It's because he uses more parables than almost any other ancient teacher. A parable is a story, and usually at the end of the story there's a nimshaw. A A nimshaw is like a rimshot, you know, brrm Uh, There's a punch to it, and the stories generally have more than one level. You know, Jesus didn't apparently teach in Hebrew. He didn't apparently teach in Greek. He taught in West Aramaic, and we know that because so many words from West Aramaic, uh, which came from uh, the Persians, uh, was actually included in the scriptures. So you've heard these words, Abba is Aramaic, Gehenna meaning hell, is aramaic Elohai, my god is aramaic ipetak open is aramaic Kipa or cephas which is saint peter's name uh, rock is aramaic korban a uh, sacrificial offering aramaic mamona for property aramaic pasha for passover aramaic Rabuni, my lord my teacher um aramaic and so the scriptures go from an Aramaic-speaking teacher into Greek. So there's always going to be um, judgments made about how stories are told, even going from Greek to Latin or Greek to English, first-century Greek to 21st-century English, translators make judgments. Um, sometimes they actually do make a difference in how we understand uh, Words and stories, but to always think that Jesus is a storyteller, storytelling is rooted in in language, and that we are separated somehow from the language. Why does Jesus use so many images, um, even though that there's word play in his in his stories? It's the images that stick with you, because the images are things that a translator can bring across really much more clearly than simple wordplay. And the story about Lazarus and Devis, the rich man, is really not so much about wordplay, but the big picture that's presented of this wealthy, uncaring man and this suffering, poor man, Lazarus. You know, one other thing about Jesus' parables is they're drawn from common life. You know, even now you can look back at the stories that he tells, and sometimes you do need to know a little bit about the culture of the time or the word that he used. You know, was it minas or was it the word for talent? And so when you're given a lot of talents, was this smaller item of currency or this overwhelming item of currency in the story of the man with the talents? Because it's told both ways in the scripture probably doesn't make any difference as to how the parable's understood, but it does tell you something about the prevalence and the meaning of language in stories. But how about this? Um, It's the fact that Jesus has these backgrounds where he tells stories about farmers and handymen and crooked managers, rich landowners. He talks about how seed grows. Uh, He talks about violent armies. You know, one of the things is, Jesus grew up in Nazareth and about four miles away from a town named Sephorus. And when he was a little boy, that town was absolutely destroyed by the Roman army, and a man named Publius Quintilius Verus. uh, And they just completely razed the town. As an adult, Jesus and his dad may have helped to rebuild the town. Verus is one of those people that are... Uh, that are somehow behind the story of scripture that actually have these bigger stories. He was killed in 9 AD at the Battle of Tutteborg Forest, which is one of the worst military disasters of the Roman Empire. So why were the Romans so harsh? Well, it's because everywhere the rule was being fought. Uh, Even the zealots in Jesus's world wanted to throw Roman domination off. So you look at Aramaic as the language, the background of Jesus' story when he talks about uh, if you were, uh, have an army of 10,000 and you're facing an army of 20,000, you better try to try to come up with peace, which is something about the story of Varus and how he was slaughtered in the Tudorberg forest. But there's also uh, the way that he uses creative language and so how he talks about um uh, the images and the words he uses. Do you remember in one of the parables where a lady says to Jesus, blessed is uh, the womb of the, uh, the blessed are the breast that nursed you and the womb that bore you. And Jesus says, rather blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Well, you know, in Eastern language, uh, in his world, you praise the son by praising mom and dad. And so for this lady to say, blessed is your mother for all of this, mostly we pick this up, but how Jesus turns it around and says, no, 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 blessed are the people who listen to the word of God. And Jesus knew how well his mom listened to the word of God. So thinking about how language is used in parables also adds depth to them, to the thing. But here's what I want to get at um, in language, in stories, now Jesus Uses and tells these stories, especially with the shawl, the the rim shot at the end, what the upshot is. How easy it is to take stories and reduce them so, so, solely to morality. As if the New Testament was only about um, how it is that you should treat your neighbor. Because so much of the story about, in, in this story about this rich man who ignores the poor man, This is all found uh, in the Old Testament, and it goes way back even into the Torah and the prophet Amos, and especially the Psalms that I'll talk about a little bit. So that Jesus came up with something new? No, the Jewish people had a very strong social ethic and their duty to the poor. And so when he tells stories about people in Israel that ignore the poor, Everybody knows that this is what got Israel in trouble with God uh, And they were destroyed, all the 12 tribes Mostly by abuse of the poor That's both about the northern 10 tribes in Jerusalem The prophets, Amos, Hosea, Ezekiel, Jeremiah um, And uh, I don't know, name, whatever There's like 24 of them or more uh, They all say the same thing Boy, you mistreat the poor, you're going to tick God off. So that's a given in this story, uh, and it runs through the story. But fundamentally, it's not what the story is about. And so now we're going to talk about the story about Devis and the rich man, and try to understand what the upshot is, the nimshaw, the rimping shot at the end. About why it is to pay attention to the poor. So the reading for the 26th Sunday of Ordinary Time is from chapter 16 of Luke. And it's a part of Luke where there's a lot of stories about care for the poor and morality. You remember last week was the story about the dishonest steward, um, where Jesus uses basically a criminal that defrauds his employer twice and says, this is the guy you want to be like. Well, no, it's not about morality in the sense that... um, You should go out and cheat people so you can get into heaven. Instead, it's about this man taking care of himself and using his worldly goods so that he might have a place when he's kicked out of his present employment. So for us, in this follow-up story to the story of the dishonest steward who is hoping that the people who helped him to defraud his boss might make a place for him when he's kicked out, now we're taking a story about a rich man and a poor man because the poor man is in the bosom of Abraham and Abraham is not uh, making any place at all for the rich man Devas. So let's speak in and listen to this story. Jesus said to the Pharisees, There was a rich man who dressed in purple garments and fine linen and dined sumptuously each day. And lying at his door was a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who would gladly have eaten his fellow of the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. Dogs even used to come and lick his sores. When the poor man died, he was carried away by angels to the bosom of Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. And from the netherworld where he was in torment, he raised his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he cried out, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus. To dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am suffering torment in these flames. Abraham replied, My child, remember that you received what was good during your lifetime, while Lazarus likewise received what was bad. But now he's comforted here, whereas you are tormented. Moreover, between us and you, a great chasm is established to prevent anyone from crossing who might wish to go from our side to yours, or from your side to ours. He said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they too come to this place of torment. But Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. He said, Oh no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. And Abraham said, They'll not listen to Moses and the prophets Neither will they be persuaded If someone should rise from the dead And so let's take a moment And talk about that great parable Following up on the story of the dishonest steward So here's a picture of the afterlife And people think of heaven way up there And hell down there Uh, But it's not how the afterlife is depicted in this It's as if there's this one place. And there's this huge chasm, this huge canyon that prevents people from going back and forth. So regardless of what you may have been told, there are no day trips to heaven and no day trips to hell. You just can't cross this chasm for whatever that chasm is, but it keeps the rich man out. So the first part I want to talk about is why is the rich man in torment? And Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham, which is uh, with his people, because this is the Old Testament understanding of what happens when your bones are gathered to your people. You're reunited to the people you love. Um, I always ask people when they lose their spouse, did you like them? And when they say, yes, I like them very much, I said, I'm sorry, because it's so hard to lose someone you like. Uh, It just makes you feel so empty. But that the image Jesus is holding up of what the bosom of Abraham means is that you're gathered to your people, uh, that you're with your family. And so love of family, love of parents, fundamental. But at the same time, the Old Testament and the New, it's unequivocal about the duty for the poor. You see it in the prophets, but you also see it very much in the Psalms. And so, for instance, Psalm 77. May their belly be filled with good things. May their children have more than enough. As for me, I shall behold thy face in righteousness when I awake. I shall be satisfied with beholding thy form. And so it's a poor man saying, all right, fine. Laugh it up today, laughing boy. But I'm uh, beholding God because my reward is in heaven. You know, the knock on Christianity is a pie in the sky when you die. That's why the modern bishops make so much about social justice and care for the poor, because it is about a coherent understanding of what it means to be an American people or any people at all, where everybody has a place at the table, from the unborn to the elderly, um, that the understanding of what the world brings in the bosom of Abraham should inform us about what it is that a healthy human world looks like. Care for the poor, care for our families. These are why Christians make so much noise about the unborn caring for migrants and those that seem to be abandoned in life. Well, here's Psalm 73, another psalm that has care for the poor as its um, main focus. Quote, nevertheless, I am continually with thee, Thou dost hold my right hand. Whom have I in the heaven but thee? And there is nothing upon earth that I desire besides thee. But for me, it is good to be near God. This is not just an encouragement to place our hope in the afterlife, but an awakening to the true stature of man's being, which does, of course, include the call to eternal life. But it's about living eternity now. Because it is, as the psalmist says, that I'm supposed to be concerned uh, about what heaven is. And if heaven with thee is unity, then this is something we should be experiencing on earth. You know, in reality, the Lord is using the story about Lazarus and Devas to talk about our care for the poor because it's a very important part of his moral teaching. But there's this deeper part which is very present in this story. How about the rich man and how the rich man understands his place now that he is in Hades? That he understands that something about how it is that he treated Lazarus is why he um, can't be in heaven, uh, gathered with his people to the bosom of Abraham. You know, that end part, um, really, the nimshaw about where uh, the rich man says, Send Lazarus to my five brothers, so warn them. And then remember, Abraham says, Gosh, they got Moses and the prophets, and so they're not going to listen to them. They're not going to listen to someone. Even if he should rise from the grave. Here's a couple observations to think about. And it's about blindness in our eyes. First, when Abraham is addressing, is being addressed by Devis, who is this rich man that had all his rewards in this life. First, he says to Abraham, send Lazarus to dip his finger in water to cool my tongue. And that's when uh, Abraham says, this chasm, he can't get over there. He can't do that for you. Well, note the language, because this is about parables and how a story is told. The rich man never addresses Lazarus, both in this earth or the next. Uh, he talks to Abraham and tells him to boss Lazarus around and go do something. What is that chasm but the rich man's contempt for the poor man? It's something other than just. He, he doesn't uh, feed him. It's that he, he walks by him uh, every day, going into his house this leper covered with sores, and completely ignores him. How do you know that that's part of this man's blindness and what he needs to awaken to, but apparently cannot because he's locked into it in the 80s? He then says to Abraham, send Lazarus to my brothers to warn them. Again, doesn't even talk to Lazarus. It's as if he's beneath contempt. How it is that we guard, how it is we look at our brothers and sisters This is not a digression from the purpose of the story about the poor, but it's a different dimension of what heaven looks like. Um, You can, I guess, write checks, and that's a good thing to care for the poor. Um, You can shove a dollar at a homeless guy. It's not the same thing as looking him in the eyes. And I recognize that what I'm saying here might be different for a woman alone on a dark street uh, as opposed to a man Uh, out in the middle of, uh, you know, downtown when someone panhandles you. But how is it that you actually care for the poor? You know, when we look at the really great work that's done, like at Sister Jose um, Women's Shelter, and Jean Fennigan just got a great award, the Lumen Christi Award from uh, the Catholic Extension. Or you look at Brian Flagg and Casa Maria, or you look at um, the Franciscans, and what they're doing at uh, David Buer and uh, what they do at Pavarello House. Um, it's where the poor people are actually persons. They're just not part of an assembly line getting food and clothes shoved at them. As important as food and clothing is, what happens when in your mentality you refuse to see other people as human beings? It's not even limited uh, to just the poor. What happens in political discussions When you refuse to recognize the humanity of another person you know it permeates a mindset and how we could fall into these horrible traps where people simply are ignored um, as we uh, pursue these very narrow uh, purposes that we have in an underdeveloped uh, human heart here's something else Did you notice that the name of the poor man is Lazarus? Now that should actually ring some bells because you remember Lazarus, Mary, and Martha are friends of Jesus. And in John's gospel, if you remember, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And in John's gospel, the people begin to believe in Jesus because he raised Lazarus from the dead. And so why do the chief priests and the scribes begin to plot against him? because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, think about that storyline, the actual historical life of Jesus, and what was it that provoked his crucifixion, and read it back into this story about Abraham, the rich man, uh, and Lazarus, is what happens when Lazarus raises from the dead with the rich man's... um, brothers actually repent no um they kill him uh they'd shut him down and so do you remember what jesus says when he's asked for a sign kind of to bring this portion of the podcast to an end do you remember he says oh a sinful and evil generation asks for a sign you receive only one sign the sign of jonah and jonah comes back from the dead when he's swallowed by the fish and comes back from the dead um That's a sign. But what happens is he goes to Nineveh, and then Nineveh repents, and the sign is the repentance of the pagan people. So when Lazarus rises from the dead, and think of Jesus as Lazarus, the one that they don't notice, the one that the scribes and the Pharisees, the powerful, and every generation, every place might want to shut down. When Lazarus rises from the dead, it's not his brothers or the brothers of the people that persecuted him that listen it's all the other people and the sign is is that they understand the promise of the life eternal in the bosom of abraham but that it means that we have now to care for the people that god has given us to love so let's turn to saint paul's letter to first timothy when he talks about us preparing for eternal life, for how we spend our life in this world. So this is a reading from St. Paul's first letter to Timothy, chapter six. And remember, Timothy is a very Catholic epistle, bishops, presbyters, deacons. St. Paul talks about laying his hand on Timothy, which is still part of the ordination ritual in Orthodox and Catholic Christianity. Um, And so here's what Paul says in the opening lines of uh, the reading for this weekend. But as for you, man of God, shun all this, aim at righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So let's just focus on those lines. The good confession in the presence of many witnesses is probably what happens in baptism when you deny Satan all his evil works and all his, all his empty promises. You acknowledge God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You confess the faith and you enter into the death of Christ just like Lazarus in the gospel entered into death and into the bosom of Abraham. And so now you baptized Christians are in eternal life. Eternal life doesn't start after death. Eternal life starts right now. And so the problem of Lazarus and the rich man is the rich man just doesn't even listen to Moses and the prophets. He takes all the errors of all the generations before him when he ignores Lazarus. So for us to live eternal life, is to think about the poor amongst us, the needy amongst us, the people that might be on our enemies list, and think of them as a brother and sister. You know, today I ran into a guy in a parking lot. He asked, because I was wearing a collar, are you a Catholic priest? And I said, yes. I said, are you a Catholic? He said, well, I was raised Catholic. You already know what all that means. And I said, well, where are you? Do you believe in God? He goes, well, mostly I'm concerned about my parents, but I pushed it. And I said, so do you go to Mass? He goes, no. He goes, I, "I just the whole organization thing bothers me. So I said, well, you know, Jesus' two commands are love God and love your neighbor. If you can't even be at peace worshiping God with your neighbor, that might be a sign of something. Because everybody comes to Catholic Masses, and there's sinners sitting on both sides of us. We're surrounded by them for heaven's sake. We all raise our voices in prayer to God. So how many lepers are in those pews, including ourselves and the priest at the altar, that we're called to recognize, pray with, and pray for? This is something about eternal life. Do you remember fires in hell, fire in purgatory, fire in heaven? The difference between heaven and hell, hell is a place where there's nothing but justice. Heaven's a place that's only possible through mercy. But there has to be something where you change faith that works which allows you to inherit the joy of eternal life so this also is what in first timothy you made your confession of faith um, that you're taking hold of eternal life and saint paul says shun all these worldly things aim at being righteous godly faith-filled loving steadfast and gentle because this, this is the life of the saint. Um, in the ancient world, that would be called piety. We think of piousness as kind of, you know, someone who says the rosary all the time and uh, shrieks whenever they hear, hear, hear a, a bad word. But piety in the ancient world meant duty and obligation, that we have duties and obligation to God and to one another and in following those duties and those obligations, slowly we're transformed by our human cooperation with grace. Um, the Protestant idea that we're saved by grace and now we're supposed to live it out, it just, it's not an explanation that makes sense from a human term, in, my, in terms, in my personal understanding of my life as a Christian. To try to live publicly as a Christian to see uh, God in what I do, to trust even when, boy, it can be really tough, to learn to, when you give a buck to a poor guy, you know, ask his name, say, God bless you. Recognize his humanity. Learn how in an argument of whatever the argument is, how to shut it down because it really, it's mostly about a profane argument. Um, Not gonna be determining uh, eternal life, so put everything in this world into the right uh perspective, and then that's why uh Saint Paul says um that you have to train like a spiritual athlete like a boxer trains or a guy who runs trains um because it isn't come easy. Did you know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you might obtain it. Every athlete um, exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. Well, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I pummel my body and subdue it, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified from the contest. Holy moly, friends, the importance of discipline, daily prayer in your life, paying attention to the church's call to penance on Friday. Uh, I've noticed people are always talking about fasting and prayer. I love St. Therese. She just says, I do what the Carmelites tell me to do. I do what the church tells me to do in our diocese. Think about what it is that you do on friday to remember the crucifixion of the lord is it that you abstain from meat that's a good one but if you can't because of age or something else what do you do that's penitential because it's part of your training because if you're going to be a boxer and a racer, you know you can't eat three pieces of uh chocolate cake smoke cigars and drink manhattans you got to cut back on that stuff to get in training well it's the same thing in the spiritual life um we should enjoy this world. Uh, Jesus in his story is not condemning the rich man because he has good things. What he's condemning is how that rich man looks at poor men, how it is that we look out in the world, how we worship God, and we think of the people in the pews beside us and the community at large. So this has been Father John Arnold. This has been another edition of Oral Valley Catholic. See you next week.